On today's Pats podcast, we're going to make you stronger by making you smarter. Stick around. Let's be better athletic trainers. I'd like to once again thank Rothman Orthopedics for their support of the Pats podcast and athletic trainers in the state of Pennsylvania. For more information, check them out at RothmanOrtho.com. All right, I want to welcome John O'Neill to the show today. Uh, John is a, a close and personal friend of mine. He, We've known each other for, for quite some time now. He actually in, interned with me as a sports medicine student assistant, um, I, to, man, I don't even know, too many years ago, and uh, went on to get his CSCS and is the director of performance at Cressy Sports Performance. If you all have never heard of Cressy Sports Performance, I highly recommend you check them out. They deal primarily with uh, overhead athletes and baseball players and uh, just crush it at, per, at developing elite baseball players and keeping them injury free. So that's what we're really going to focus on today is talking about overhead athletes, um, arm care and, and how to keep those athletes performing really high and also pain free and injury free. Um, so John has a really unique background. So I'm going to let John take it over from here and uh, just give us a little bit about um, you know your education, your background and uh, how you got to where you are right now. Yeah, Adam, thanks for having me. Uh, like Adam said, I've known him since, I think, 2010 or 2011. I uh, started working for him in, I think, fall 2011. Uh, worked through the end of college, would have been spring 2014. I've uh, stayed in touch with him since then. So it's uh, fun to be on a podcast like this. Usually when we're talking, it's not a, as, a, uh, as formal a setting. Um, but um, a little bit about my background and how it applies to where I am today. Uh, played sports growing up, uh, like I think a lot of people in our field, um, got hurt all the time, like also like a lot of people in our field, um, started seeking answers to, you know, how to train in smarter ways, how to still train hard and, and stay on the field. Um, that didn't turn so much into my own athletic endeavors, but became on the coaching side. Um, interning slash working for Adam was uh, more happenstance than anything. Um, there were two available jobs for freshmen at Dickinson College uh, where I went and it was either you work in the cafeteria or you work as something called a sports medicine student assistant and as someone with uh, my interest in sports that job sounded a lot more enticing so went for that uh, wound up getting it wound up working like 20 to 30 hours a week my entire junior and senior year uh, basically put more time into that than like anything else at school um, just because Adam and I kind of hit it off and um, he was the kind of the first one to introduce me to a lot of different training topics um, towards the end of college, not really sure what I wanted to do. Um, this is seven years ago now, but I'm uh, not really sure what I wanted to do and um, decided to just go for it and, and go into strength and conditioning. Um, I emailed probably about 40 uh, different people in the field, people that I had read on sites like T Nation and EricCressy.com and Mike Boyle and Dan John and all these guys who um, are kind of like godfathers of our field and emailed all of them like seeking career advice, just trying to see if like it was possible to um, go from being a math major um, without really a traditional background, uh, which is what I was, um, into the field. And, you know, nine out of 10, the people that I emailed got back to me. And nine out of 10 of those people told me like, yeah, you can do it. You just got to get like good experience. You got to intern at good places. You got to, um, you know, really be willing to embrace like working a lot of hours and potentially unpaid. Um, and so uh, that's kind of what I spent the rest of 2014 after graduating doing. Um, interned at Grand Phone Training Systems, interned at uh, Crisis Sports Performance. Uh, in Florida, I work with the Massachusetts one right now, uh, but interned at one in Florida in 2014. Uh, from there, wound up working at two places uh, before coming back to CSP, uh, the Annex Sports Performance in New Jersey and Drive 495 in New York, uh, both of which were, were really good facilities and uh, are really good facilities to work at, especially because I had people around me to learn from. Um, I think one thing I've tried to make a priority uh, wherever I've been, uh, just given the you know untraditional background and given you know, how important I, I think a mentor or how important I think having people around you to learn from is. Um, everywhere I've worked has been, you know, around either like-minded professionals or professionals who, who push themselves and, and, you know, by default push me. And so I've really spent the last, you know, if you count the time with Adam, uh, nine, 10 years trying to learn as much as I can um, in the S&C field. Um, and, you know, that's kind of where I wound up, um, you know, or how I wound up where I am today. Um, I've been at CSP Massachusetts for four years now. It's actually four years this week, uh, but been in my current role as director of performance uh, for about three to three and a half. It's, it was a little under a year when I got that role, um, and I can get into kind of what that role looks like. Um, you know, I just want to kind of turn it back over to you guys for, for questions. 
Yeah, I, I would love, um, you know, talk about Cressy Sports Performance. You know, what what is your specialty? Talk to me what the director performance looks like and, you know, what a typical day looks like, what kind of athletes are coming through, what your, your training philosophies are. Um, feel free to, to kind of touch on anything. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll, I'll try to cover all those questions. I think there are probably a couple within that. Um, yep. So I know I know most of this podcast, athletic trainers, um, there's definitely some overlap, you know, in fields. It's kind of like a picture of Venn diagram between PT and ATC and athletic training. Um, you know, there are things in your skill sets that are not in mine. There are things in mine that um, technically could be in yours, but I might have more experience with. Um, so uh, there's, there's definitely the different segments. Um, we uh, are pretty much uh, all on the strength and conditioning side. Um, we have PTs in-house, we have manual therapists in-house, uh, but a majority of my day is spent actually coaching. And so um, I'm looking at somewhere between 30 and 35 hours a week of coaching, uh, working with athletes anywhere from age of 12 up to, um, I say athletes, but we have some gen pop people as well. Like we have a guy who's 73, 74, who comes in pretty regularly. Um, and so we have a, a pretty good group of adults, uh, but 80% of our population is baseball players between the age of like 16 and 24. Um, guys all the way from, you know, freshmen, freshmen, sophomores in high school um, through, you know, a couple guys in the major leagues. Our Florida facility, um, if you look at our Instagram, is known for their work with major league players, minor league players. Um, we are in, you know, somewhat rural Massachusetts. And so while we do have, um, you know, a pretty good stock of professional players that come through during the off season, it's 13 or 14 that come in regularly. Um, you know, the Florida facility is much more known for that. Um, Within your other questions, uh, my actual role, uh, we have two owners. Um, so Eric Cressy, you guys may have heard of, and then Pete Dupuy, who runs the business end. Eric spends most of his year in Florida. Um, he spends the, basically the summers up here. Um, he also has commitments with the Yankees. And so uh, my job is basically to oversee what happens in the training floor. And so uh, we have a full team of strength and conditioning coaches. We have four of them. Um, we have a full internship program, which is anywhere from like five to eight interns at a time. Um, and so that's basically our, our coaching staff. Um, it's my job to oversee um, not only, you know, what their jobs look like, but also programming philosophies and continuing education and, and organization of schedules and, um, you know, everything that kind of goes within that. Um, kind of like a, almost like a general manager role for a team. And so, um, you know, I can do parts of all of the jobs, but my job is more to oversee all of it. Um, I still program for, I probably write somewhere between 60 and 85 programs a month. Um, our model is based on individualization. And so uh, that doesn't mean everybody's on like completely different programs. That means that we have the opportunity to individualize. And so um, versus like some, some college or more group settings where everyone is on the exact same program, um, our model when we take people in starts with an individual assessment. Uh, we're looking at everything from basic health history to um, question and answer intake, you know, trying to get the athletes training background, what they do well, what they need to work on, what their goals are. Um, in addition to a series of more biomechanics based testing. So, you know, stuff like range of motion, um, stuff that's more active control based, like a toe touch and a squat. Um, you know, some of it, if you guys are familiar, it's rooted in SFMA principles. It's rooted in PRI principles. It's rooted in, you know, some FRC principles. There's all kinds of schools of thought that um, my boss, Eric, and our staff over the years um, has, has kind of blended into our own eval that takes somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes. And so every single athlete is going to go through that process when they come in. From there, they're going to go through, um, you know, kind of a, a baseline training session to start, and then we'll write the program after that day one. Um, our programs all work in four-week blocks, um, and we'll have athletes complete anywhere from you know, if we have someone for the summer, they might get three programs in summer. If we have someone all off season, fall, winter, we might have an athlete for six to eight months. And so, um, but every every progression, every program is based off how the athlete is progressing, how they're doing, uh, based off the goals that we set, based off the goals that they set, um, and you know, and their schedule of you know other activities. Um, but that model really allows us to, I think, see a lot um, cleaner or more efficient progressions um, than a group model. And it doesn't mean if you're in a group model, you can't do something similar. Um, but it allows us to really meet the athlete where they're at. And so people don't really fall behind or people don't really uh, exceed their program. They're all kind of like performing where they should be um, with their program. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but um, I think I think I touched on the, uh, the questions you had there. Yeah. Phil, you got anything? What do you, what, so I'm, I'm interested to see, um, like, more on, like, the philosophies, um, how you – um, 
how you're deciding the exercises, how you're implementing them, uh, functional versus uh, static, um, things like that. Yep, absolutely. So um, I'll use an analogy I use with our interns. So I um, I run our, our education program with our interns and uh, that's always kind of been an interest or a passion of mine. Both my parents were teachers and so are, are teachers still. Um, and so like actually how things are taught oftentimes I think is more important than what is actually being taught. And I think that uh, everyone who, you know, I guess most of the people on this podcast have been through higher levels of schooling at some point. Um, it's not necessarily the, the, the information that was being taught in terms of if you retain it, it's how it was taught to you or what level of importance it was taught to you with. So um, having said that, um, we'll take like a 30,000 foot view in terms of what we're doing first, and then we'll kind of get down in, into the weeds of it. But uh, everything starts with uh, to a combination of two things. So it's the individual, where they're at right now, and then the second thing is uh, what they want to do. And so let's say, to use a specific example, I get a 15-year-old baseball player um, who has never lifted weights before, um, no injury history, just kind of the, the ideal eval because it's really easy to do well with that person, right? Um, we have to look at what are the competencies that they're going to need to play baseball at a high level. And so you basically look at it from the gold standard backwards. Um, that philosophy of like whittling down from the from the end is much, much easier to comprehend. And it's much, much easier to progress people with than starting from like, what is the easiest thing they can start with and progress up? Because you can progress up for a long, long time. Like, let's say you're starting with um, you know, like really simple corrective exercises, like your go-to day one. Um, it might be a while before the person is moving weight with any kind of load or velocity. Um, and so we're going to start at the end point and whittle our way down. Um, so every teenager we get, I'm going to backtrack. Be like, all right, if this guy wants to be a Division One baseball player, what needs to change between now and the time he turns 18 or 19? Um, and so for us, um, it's a combination of several schools of thought. Uh, there's stuff on the speed and power end. There's stuff on the strength end. There's stuff on the mobility end. Um, there's stuff on the, the health end. Uh, I think it's a major concept to, to realize that like health and performance are not always the same thing. Um, you know, if we, we wanted people to be as healthy as possible, we wouldn't have them throw a baseball as hard as they can overhand for, you know, 60, 80, hundred innings a year. And so, um, it's knowing what we can do to help them a perform better, but B keep them healthy at the same time. Um, our programming in order to like walk you through what a program looks like, um, average session takes 75 to 90 minutes. Um, we'll okay. sometimes have sessions that are a lot shorter if someone is in all the time. We'll occasionally have a session that's longer if somebody is, um, you know, also throwing and also doing a bunch of other things within that day. Um, our model, we're a 15,000 square foot gym. Um, we have uh, pitching cages within there. We we see a lot of very high volume of, of high level arms or, or just uh, pitcher, pitchers in general. Um, and so our model, uh, everybody has their own packet, their own programs. We have coaches floating around helping them at all times. Um, they have a warm-up page. The warm-ups, you know, are very much um, corrective, corrective exercise based or influence. Um, they go into some kind of dynamic, dynamic warm-up or some kind of speed and power work. Uh, from there, they might go into additional speed and power work, depending on who the person is. If that's something they need to, needed to work on more, if that's something that fits their program, um, med ball throws, jumps, sprints, etc. From there, it's some kind of lifting, and so. Uh, you know, we, we deadlift people, we squat people, we, we lunge people, all like the, the basic heavier exercises. Um, we don't do very much Olympic lifting with our baseball population, just from a risk reward standpoint. Um, uh, just, uh, we haven't seen that, like the, the ability to, you know, clean and jerk or to, to, um, to snatch heavier weights, um, correlate well with, with our guys who are maybe looser, um, to, you know, need to develop good stiffness in their, their elbows, wrists, and shoulders. Um, and so it's kind of is a risk-reward scenario. It's also a transfer to sports scenario, whereas the vertical power probably doesn't correlate very well with baseball. We're, we're, we're going to train rotational power more than anything. Um, but to backtrack to actual order of the program, it's kind of some kind of main strength section, uh, followed by some kind of accessory, accessory strength section, um, and then some kind of like uh, – movement efficiency, arm care, core, something towards the end that is more like uh, lower level. Um, you used the word static before. We might use some static hold variations, uh, but something that is um, more rooted around health and performance. And so that's kind of the arc of the session. If you think of it like an arc, it's it starts slow. It starts built around movement efficiency. Then it gets fast. Then it you know, gets heavier. Then it, it goes back to kind of where it started with different things. Um, um, our... Um, 
our model is uh, built around getting people in as frequently as possible. And so like we're in the private sector, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people on this call are not in terms of in the school sector. And um, so it's probably a little different. Uh, people don't have to show up to us. There's, there's no mandate that they have to show up. And so um, it is very much like, um, you know, it's the private sector. It's making sure you're, you're serving clients needs and making sure you're doing right by the client and make sure they're engaged in the training process. And um, our pricing structure is set up so that it incentivizes people to be there more often. And so yeah. um, I write more four to six day a week programs than I do one to three day a week programs, um, just the way our program's set up. Like our average client is in three or four days a week. So John, okay. you, you touched on it. Um, you started to kind of go down that rabbit hole. I think we got off topic, but like, so you said you, you used the example of the 15 year old that wants yep. to go D one. Do you have, um, or can you talk about maybe some of those check those boxes that you need to check to be that D one athlete? Like, is there a minimal level of strength that you, you have identified? Is there a minimal amount of let's, let's use pitchers, for example, yep. you know, um, is there a minimal amount of shoulder ER versus IR? Give me some of those things that you guys at Cressy Sports Performance, you know, really working with overhead athletes that you're specifically looking for that are you're like, okay, this guy is going to be able to throw 90 plus mile an hour and be healthy. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start subjective, then we'll get objective. Um, so uh, just touching on background, um, things that I don't think are taught very well in the school setting is like critical thinking and logic and kind of big picture, like, all right, what's, what is the, where does, uh, where is this exercise leading or where is it leading towards? And so, um, I used to think my, my background was a, uh, was kind of a hindrance towards career progress. Now I think it's an advantage, uh, because every, every athlete that you get or every client that you get or every patient on your end that you get is problem solving. And so the, the, yeah. the better you are at critical thinking and making decisions, in real time and having a hierarchy behind your decision-making, the, the quicker you're going to see results. And so um, otherwise it would just be like, there'd be the same script for everyone. And there wouldn't be any, you know, no one would listen to this podcast because we would know the exact script. <laughs> you, right. Right. Yep. And so um, here's your protocol. Just go do it. <laughs> exactly. And I think everyone listening to this podcast has probably started to shift away from that like 1980s mindset of like, here are the exercises for the, for the individual, regardless of who they are. And so, right. um, and so, and probably, prior 1980, but like, that's kind of the history of our industry is like, here's the sheet, go do it. Um, and so, um, a lot of it is critical thinking and decision-making, uh, from an objective standpoint, um, let's take a 30,000 foot view again. Like it starts with, with just gross size. And so I know the, the average major league pitcher is 215, 218 pounds. Um, and so, uh, division one is, you know, obviously a little less than that division three, varsity is going to be a, a derivative of that not a huge derivative of that though we're not looking at like varsity baseball players being 150 pounds they're probably a little higher and so if we get a kid who is you know 510 150 the first thing is like we got to put some size and strength on you we got to put something behind what you're doing um you know other because strength is not a a, a a driver of performance per se but it's more so a driver of potential performance for performance right yep. so like getting stronger doesn't guarantee you're going to be better but it gives you more options to make changes down the road and so um that's number one like do we need to make any any size changes or, or strength changes um from a range of motion standpoint uh i've seen a lot of different things work um that's kind of the the nature of of pitching and baseball um, other sports have a little more exact like this is kind of what you need but um because of the nature of the task, like guys release, you guys can't see me, but guys release ball all the way overhand and all the way underhand and somewhere in the middle. And so there are a lot of different endpoints that you're trying to get to. Um, and so it's more important to fit what you're trying to do to your body than it is to try to fit your body to the task because the task is a little bit open-ended. Um, so, but I'll, I'll give some actual like uh, range of motion just so people have something subjective. Um, if a kid can't touch their toes, that's a primary one that we're going to work on. Um, if you can backtrack the pitching delivery, so thinking back to critical thinking and kind of a subjective analysis, like we have to be able to rewind the delivery. And so if you can't flex your, your trunk or if you can't go and in, get into trunk flexion over hip flexion, um, you're going to have a really tough time releasing the baseball safely. And so um, that would be a big picture thing we're going to look at. Um, if you can't touch your toes, we're going to work on that. We're going to try to figure out why as well. Um, actual range of motion wise, um, you know, um, the textbooks are probably going to tell you like 90 ER and 90 IR and the throwing, in the, or sorry, in the shoulder or norms. 
Um, we basically never see that in, in arms of any kind of caliber. Um, we're looking at closer to 110, 120 degrees in a throwing shoulder. Um, IR, anything, anything like sub 45 starts to become a little bit concerning to me. Um, and that's something that we need to work on. But um, I've seen a lot of higher level guys have, have around there and be okay. Um, I'm generally more concerned with overhead shoulder flexion as a, as a marker for, for health. Um, and so if someone starts to really lose overhead shoulder flexion, specifically like after they throw and it gets worse throughout the year, so just the ability to get, you know, on since supine, your arm or your, your humerus to the table. Um, like if someone really starts to lose that, I consider that to be a little bit of a red flag and, and we're going to try to address that. Um, elbow extension, same thing. Those things go hand in hand. And so, um, elbow extension should be full, um, or it should be very, very close to it. Um, a lot of times we get these guys who are older and, you know, haven't had those ranges of motion in a while, and we're not necessarily going to be able to restore those to full, um, at least not easily. Uh, but we're going to try to keep putting dents in that or keep trying to prevent those from getting worse. Um, actual hip range of motion, uh, the, the back leg hip, um, I've seen a lot of guys with very little back leg hip in a pitcher. The back leg hip really doesn't need that much internal rotation. So when you go to load, um, ideally you have some from a health standpoint or from a performance standpoint, if you have 20, 30 degrees, you can probably get away with it. Now, if you have like 10 or less, your, your movement options are very, very limited. Um, you know, textbooks probably tell you 40, 45 degrees is norm. Um, we see very few high level arms with that much or more. Um, we occasionally will, but, um, occasionally will just because the task is like I said, a little bit open-ended in terms of what point you're trying to get to. Um, the lead leg, uh, so let's say right-hand right -hand pitcher, the left leg when it lands, that leg should have 30 to 45 degrees of internal rotation. If it doesn't, we're looking at someone who has to kind of cut themselves off, off when they land because you have to be able to rotate through that hip at release point. And so um, that's just, you know, I would say probably it's a very high percentage. Let's say 75% of the programs that I've written over the last three, four years are pitchers. Um, just the nature of our model. And um, so that's, you know, it's not necessarily, I don't know those numbers for, for all, for all sports. Uh, but I will say that like, if we get someone in a different sport, I'll start looking into what competencies they need. Um, on the baseball end, we're able to look into competencies like range of motion and, and stuff like that with a little more depth and importance um, than maybe, you know, I have some uh, field hockey, lacrosse and soccer players that have had over the last couple of years. Um, they, the sport doesn't limit their range of motion in, in extremes like baseball might. However, with that end, we're looking a lot more at conditioning modalities and looking a lot more at, like, can we make them faster? Can we make them cut more efficiently? Um, can we get them in the kind of shape they need to be in to play? Um, yeah. And our, our model with those people is built around um, developing gross outputs first um, and, then, and then getting more specific conditioning towards the season. So, like, I think the classic um, college model for like getting a lacrosse or field hockey player in shape is like just condition them year round. But for us, like if you're not fast already, you're just conditioning yourself to be slower, to be a medium speed. And so we're going to work on speed for a majority of the off season uh, before we get into specific conditioning later on. Just because if you look at like um, the nature of aerobic adaptations, like you don't need a, or, or a ton of time um, to develop those competencies, but yeah. you do need a lot of time to develop speed. So yeah. that's a little bit of a tangent, but uh, yeah, no, I was going to say, let's, let's, we can circle back to that. That because obviously yeah. that's, you know, we, we, we love to nerd out about speed and how that relates to conditioning and et cetera. But you, you hit on a couple good topics yeah. um, that I do want to circle back to um, one. The first thing you said, just, I, I think people, especially in the strength conditioning field and, and well, I shouldn't even say that. I think more so in the health and, 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 in medical field have really started to, you know, gotten away from bodybuilding and, and, and performance and using, putting muscle mass on as a performance enhancer, right? Like we poo pooed on bodybuilders. We, it's all functional training, et cetera, et cetera. But if, you know, in reality, if you, if you want to be a high level athlete, there is a minimal size that you have to be yeah. to be an elite athlete, right? Like specifically football is an easy example, right? Like if you're 150 pounds, you're not going to be lineman. Like that's just, it's not how it is. Right. So like that, I think, I don't think people understand that too. And, and 
from the literature, if you look at body composition specifically as well, that's a, an injury risk factor that nobody ever talks about. And it drives me nuts, right? Like nobody wants, everybody wants to dance around about a, a body composition. Cause you know, I think people get sensitive about, Oh, well, we don't want to call somebody fat. I don't want to call somebody fat either. But if you look at the, the literature, body composition plays a role in injury prevention. So if you're carrying around too much you know, excess body weight, it's going to, it, it could potentially make you injured, right? So body composition, size, I think is really important. Can you maybe talk about how you put size on athletes yeah. um, without restricting their mobility, right? Because I do think you can, if you do it wrong, you can actually make them move less efficiently. Um, and, and you know, maybe talk a little bit about your, um, so, so that one, how you do it at Cressy Sports Performance and keep mobility and not get them injured. And then two, maybe talk about youth athletes and, and their nutrition and some maybe some tricks and uh, stuff that you use with, with uh, youth athletes that, to help them gain weight. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, trying to decide where I want to start this one because I got a bunch yeah. of thoughts. But um, so, I guess the first thing is uh, like you don't. It doesn't need to be fancy, but it needs to be done well at a young age. And so, the higher level of training age you are, the more specific the exact modalities you're trying to use or improve upon are. Um, at a young age, you just need to do things well and be consistent. And so, like I talked about, our model kind of uh, breeding consistency. Because I know that if we get a kid in four days a week, it's going to be better for the kid than if it, we get him in two days a week. Regardless, the two-day-a-week program could be the perfect two-day-a-week program, and the four-day-a-week program could be a, let's say, a B-level program. Um, obviously, we're trying to write the best program we can all the time, but um, you know, not every program is perfect because it's all educated guesswork prior to it happening, right? And so the, the four-day-a-week B program is going to produce better results than the two-day-a-week A program. Okay, so like getting kids consistent and getting them to buy into process. Um, a lot of actually putting size on is, um, and, and losing weight, anything to do with actual uh, body composition or body weight changes is, is to do what you do is, or has to do with what you're doing the other, you know, the other hours in the week, 100, I think it's 168 hours in a week, right? And so uh, let's say we get a kid six hours a week, it's four 90 minute sessions. Um, if that kid isn't really into training and isn't bought into training, he's not going to go home and like crush a protein shake and have a big meal and then make sure he has breakfast the next morning. He's going to be like, all right, like I got that one done. Now let me move on to the next activity I don't want to do. And so like there has to be enjoyable in some way. Um, so that's the biggest thing. Like we're trying to create uh, people who are really into training, right. And really buy into the process because those people are going to see the best results. Um, we do some actual body weight tracking or monitoring, just depending on the population and the person where the kids like have to weigh in every week. Um, and I know when the, I know that was even, I remember at school, like that was big in the college end as well. Um, so that, that I think is valuable for, for some kids connect more with that objective. Like I need to make sure that I'm not down in weight next week. Right. And so that, that matters. Um, but I guess the big picture is like, um, you know, get people in the door frequently. Okay. Um, get them to buy into buy in and enjoy the process and buy into the other things that um, facilitate better progress in the weight room. Um, we're spoiled because like Adam, I know you've been in our gym, but like if you walk into our gym, like 80 plus 90 plus percent of people are into training. They're like, all right, this is cool. Like, um, and so you, you don't get like a lot of people who are like, oh, I hate being here. The kids, the, the ones you do are like kids who their parents force them to come. And they don't really have the desire to, to play at a higher level or to, you know, better themselves as best they can um and so i think where that comes into play this is very similar to like coaching or working with teams like if you are influencing the thought leaders or the um the more important or the the cooler quote cool i'm doing quotes to people not um uh not that can't see us but if you're influencing those people to do the things that you want people to do or it could be the higher level performers so like i know if we get seniors in high school that are really bought in our freshmen become more bought in um and so if you're influencing those people really well the people who are kind of on the fence or not sure if that's what they want to do are also more bought in they're like all right well i don't want to be that guy who's different than them so i'm going to try to be like them and so you don't have to necessarily try to influence every kid at the exact same rate you've got to kind of read the room and be like here's the kids i need to push because these kids will start to follow um okay. And so that's kind of, that's, that's with everything, but um, specifically your question about, you know, body crop changes and size and, um, you know, a lot of it's just getting kids in the door, making sure they enjoy it, um, 
making sure that they're bought into the process outside the gym as well. Um, we do offer some nutrition services. It's not our bread and butter. Like it's not what, you know, we, it's a, it's an add on to our package um, in terms of we can, you can sit down and go over nutritional stuff with uh, one of our guys on staff who, who specializes in that. Um, but um, that is more of an add on than a, uh, you have to do this in our facility. Yep. So I'm hearing, I'm hearing mostly with, with that age group, it's probably just about culture and, and buying in yes. and consistency. Yep. It's there's, there's no yeah. magic tricks. It's just absolutely eat some food and, and actually come to the gym and work hard. And so, and that goes right hand in hand with kind of like one of our bigger picture philosophies um, that is um, unspoken. It's not like a, we have it written on the wall or anything, but um, our goal setting is, is more process oriented than it is outcome oriented. And so you guys may have heard those terms at some point, um, like an outcome goal would be like, I need to throw five miles an hour harder, which is, is the goal of a lot of kids we have. However, we're not, um, monitoring their progress for that as a, well, you threw one mile an hour harder this week and one this week. So you're almost there. We're monitoring it as, well, if you want to do that, you got to train three, four days a week. You got to throw with our pitching coach. You got to be consistent. This program has to be finished in four weeks. Like it was designed. It shouldn't take five or six. Um, and you've got to start eating better. You've got to make sure you're getting sleep, not playing video games all night, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So, um, those are the things. And then we've seen, over time that like if we can accomplish those things which are all process oriented um then the outcome oriented goals start to fall in line yep yeah no i i get that so it's more it's more about creating that culture again um creating habits creating um like you said the process of becoming an elite athlete and if you can knock those down at an early age hopefully that adherence stays throughout the rest of your life and you're going to continue to see those performance gains yeah, um, absolutely. And, and what's interesting is like we are a, um, you know, we're, I should have mentioned this earlier. I think I, I may have, but um, we're a, what's called a semi-private model. So it's um, you're not one-on-one, -on -one, you're not right. group, you are individual program with coaches around you. Uh, we operate anywhere from three, we're technically under five to one, a high majority of the time we're anywhere from like two to four to two, two to four yeah. um, clients to coaches. So there are sweet spots around three to one. Yeah. Um, our clients who it's the hardest to get to buy in are the clients who never train when it's busy. It's a really interesting phenomenon. And so like you would think that like, Oh, these clients who always come when they get like a one-on-one, one-to-one -one ratio are the ones who get the best results. It's yeah. not, it's not at all. Cause those clients, they don't have like role models around them. They don't have like people who are like, Oh, I want to be like that guy. They don't yeah. see a kid maybe deadlifting yeah. four or five. And they're like, Oh, that, that's something I should strive towards. Yeah. Um, and so the clients who come when it's kind of busy, are the clients who actually see the best results because they're pushed by the environment and the culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Hey, let's, let's circle back to the range of motion. Um, so yeah. those, those numbers that, that I'm interested on that. one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is, this is really, you know, stuff that, that ATs can really take away. Um, yeah. so the, the numbers and the, in the tests that you talked about, um, let's just preface that, that those are that, that, that information is anecdotal from you, right? Like you, how, how long have you been working with, with, at Cressy Sports Performance, you said four years? Four years. I've probably done uh, – I actually have no idea how to calculate it. It's probably 1,000 to 1,500 evals. Yeah, so so yeah. you you have you have and, and and if you want to you can go into the the into your assessment process. You touched on it a little bit, but yeah. I I know what your assessment looks like, so I know you're testing range of motion on the table. So you're checking IRs, ERs, flexion, extension at the hips and the shoulders. So you you see these numbers. You're you're working with athletes from like you said, 12 year olds all the way up to major league baseball. You are a math major. I just want to. I just want to give everybody this picture. So John is a a math major. He he is he's like a, a savant brain. Like he's 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 very nerdy. So he just he puts these calculations um, in, into perspective for me all the time. So it's really helpful, even though it's not literature based, right? This is anecdotal. This is what he sees in real life with his athletes that he's that he's seeing on a daily basis. And these are these are like I said all the way from from high school athletes up to professional athletes um so that being said we painted the picture you're you're missing some of these ranges of motion right one what what are you doing about that then right so what are some of your strategies to um to to, to work on this this range of motion that they might not have um are you just stretching and strengthening or are you do you have a different philosophy towards that and then two when if if your strategies don't work when do you feel like you know because you said about having a physical therapist and a manual therapist on board in-house 
when do you feel like that's necessary to to ship them out to them to to regain that in a more um formal setting i guess i'll call it yeah um let me use the latter first and then i'll backtrack uh the latter question but uh in the presence of pain specifically active pain uh that's a referral um you know i it, could I guess my way through something? Sure. What I, should I be doing that with a paying client? Absolutely not. Right. Um, and so um, it's a referral. Um, typically, what will happen in our model is to be referred to PT or, L, or LMT, depending on the scenario. Um, and then PT will kind of contraindicate some things, send back our ways for what we can and can't do. And so that's, that's, I think, the way it should work um, in, in all settings. Um, I think it's kind of a almost a shame that a lot of like sport coaches are. Um, you know, like, oh, you can, you can work around that. When in reality, like we know that the, the body is, you know, it's a, it's a tensegrity structure, right? And so the, you, if your right shoulder is hurting, it actually might affect how your left hip is moving, right? So everything is, is interconnected. So it's not like, oh, this is hurt. Just, just train this part. It's not always that simple. Sometimes we can rule that out, but we need a educated um, practitioner to, to, to kind of guide us that way. And so uh, that's the first thing. Um, can you can you refresh me on the other part of the question? Yeah, so uh, no, it's okay. I, I mean, I, uh, I, I, do, I was, range, range of motion stuff. Right? I was yeah, I was rambly. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of paint the picture for the audience <laughs> first that you know you gave us all these numbers and 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 no, those numbers aren't from the literature. Those numbers are from your experience yes, okay, working sure. with very so, specific athletes. And then you know, how do you remedy that? Like you're you're obviously doing this yeah. big assessment. What what's next step for you if they're not in pain? What are you gonna do? Sure. Um. So I, I explained to our interns this way, like our our assessment protocols are a luxury, not a necessity. Like we, we test between 20 and 30 different things um, in a 20, 25 minute process. Uh, everything from, you know, hip and shoulder range of motion, like you talked about to active screens, like a toe touch, a squat, a uh, different uh, lunge variation, ankle mobility, et cetera. Right. And so we're looking at a bunch of different things. Our actual sheet that we're filling out is uh, 20, 25 tests. Um, or it's, it's in that neighborhood. I think it's actually 20, 24, 25, but um, we're looking at a bunch of different things. Um, we're looking for things that are maybe aberrant or abnormal. And so in order to know that, like I, I always harp on this to our interns, but you have to have like these normative range of motions memorized. Um, yep. And if they're not memorized, you have to be able to quickly look them up. Like um, you can't look at abnormal and call it abnormal unless you know normal. Right. So that's just a, a life principle more than a yep. range of motion principle. Right. And so, um, and so you have to know norms and then write it jot everything down and look for uh, SFMA or FMS principle, or uh, sorry, it's not FMS. It is a SFMA principle. They always talked about like training. I got this from you nine years ago, probably, but um, they always talked about um, chasing the DNs first. All right. And so look for things that are dysfunctional and not painful. So just, just try to work on those first. And um, from a actual, like, what do we do with it standpoint? Um, there's kind of two ways to look at this. Um, there's the, the bottom up and the top down. The bottom up is like, all right, you don't have this range of motion. What is the, what is the lower intensity modality that I can do for you that may help with it? So you don't have um, overhead shoulder flexion. Maybe I try to stretch a lat to keep it like pretty um, binary or, or um, you know, pretty straightforward for the, for the audience. Um, so that would be like, you don't have this, try this. Okay. Uh, the other flip side of that is in our, our role, where I think a lot of strength and conditioning professionals um, or professionals or industry as a whole don't necessarily look at it this way, is like, let's say somebody doesn't have that overhead shoulder flexion. Well, I've got to be able to contraindicate a bunch of things in the weight room because of that, right? Yep. And so, um, like, if somebody is, uh, you know, minus 20 degrees of overhead shoulder flexion, and I decide like, you know, deadlift is a good exercise, right? We, we believe in deadlifting. It's good for putting on size and, and power and strength, et cetera. Um, however, um, you're just driving more tension into lats and into scaps and downward rotation. And so uh, that might be a bad idea for the person if you decide that overhead shoulder flexion is important for their skill set or for their sport or for their skill set that they want. Yep. Um, the more obvious one would be like a pull-up would be a bad idea. Overhead pressing might be a bad idea because they don't necessarily have that range of motion. So they're going to have to cheat and get it from somewhere else. So um, an overhead press is a simple one to picture for people, I think. Um, so if I can't get their supine on a table, supine would be gravity-assisted passively, right? I'm moving someone's arm into it. I'm not going to be able to do it standing uh, without arching my back and putting pressure in my spine um, or doing something funky, bending at the knees or 
kind of cranking my head back to get there. Um, and so those things like that, I think strength and conditioning coaches need to be aware of, um, you know, and if they're not like your lower intensity modalities, um, your stretching, your manual therapy, your soft tissue work, whatever it is, um, stuff like that isn't going to make changes that you want to make because things that drive changes um, include load and velocity, right? So load and velocity is those things are going to drive faster changes than things that don't include load or velocity. And so if we are doing things with load and velocity that are inappropriate for the person's joint positions or, or their actual hardware, like what they have available, um, you're actually going to um, counteract the changes you're trying to make on the other end. I, I, my guess is um, a lot of athletic trainers are like nodding their head and being like, I've done all this you know, lower intensity stuff. And then I send them off to people in my profession. I send them off to the sport coach and it goes right back to where it was because they, you know, um, don't have shoulder ER and they're trying to back squat or, um, you know, they can't, they can't, um, you know, they can't, like they're, uh, you know, they can't, they can't get into, uh, lumbar flexion at all on a toe touch. And then you try to deadlift them and they it experience one degree of lumbar flexion and it strains their back. Um, so there, there's a bunch of things like that where we've got to be able to see, um, top down and bottom up, um, our model, actual training, like we do, we do stuff on both ends. So we've got to be able to attack things from the lower intensity side, um, using, you know, stuff that is you know, rooted in corrective exercise and rooted in driving good or good or favorable joint positions um, mixed with our actual lifting and, you know, speed and power side of the program has to fit what the person has. And so uh, I may have gotten this concept for you. So I apologize if I don't credit you, but um, the, I don't know where some of the things I've heard are from originally, but um, this concept of like hardware and software. So like hardware is how things are actually built and software is how it's used. Um, you're, your software has to line up with your hardware. Um, so software is like actual training choices. What you what you do with um, what you do with your body in motion. The hardware is how it's actually built. So uh, what I'm hearing is your assessment is really taking exercises off the table more so than than adding exercises to your program. Is that accurate? Yeah, I don't know if um, I don't know if it's more one than the other. I think it's I think it's both ends. Both? Um, okay. Uh, probably i've never really thought of it as like it's this not this um, yeah because i think i think it's both at the same time but i think a lot of time you do start with like all right this is ideally what i would do with somebody like this and then you you take exercise off the table based off what you see yeah um, based off what you see in the assessment yeah so the assessment is good and you need to get rid of that interference right you're not going to gain any mo mobility if you're programming exercises they're going to interfere with your ability to um to increase that mobility um so i know again just you know knowing your your model better than most um talk talk a little bit about your warm-up and and how your yep. assessment drives your your warm-up what that looks like um because i do think you know i am i am very anti and, and i'm not speaking for pats um i'm speaking for adam richard right now but um i'm very anti stretch and strengthen like old school right like i think there's a lot more to proximal stability to drive distal mobility i think um you know just stretching tissues for long periods of time just doesn't get us where we want to and, and rarely gets us where we want to i think you agree with that maybe just talk a little bit about that because i don't think as many athletic trainers are getting away from the traditional protocol based stretch this strengthen that yet and and i would just love to hear your your mindset on that especially working with with professional baseball players yeah um I was using, I'm using the term stretch before as like this loose kind of like the yeah. summarizes warmups. And so I, I am glad that you clarified that. Um, the, the concept of like, you know, uh, proximal positioning, driving distant mobility is definitely rooted in all of our, um, or all of our warmups are rooted in that. And so we're trying to drive good, you know, core and, and rib cage over pelvis positioning uh, to help improve uh, distal positioning like shoulders and hips and, and you know, elbows and, and knees, et cetera. But, um, our warmups are, you know, they have a flow to them. They're ground to standing. They're, they're simple to complex. They, um, you know, might start with some positional breathing or stuff that is going to try to drive proximal positioning first. Um, and then they're going to get into active control of those ranges of motion. So, uh, I'll give an example, like maybe a, um, you know, some kind of breathing variation that's meant to drive hip internal rotation is followed up with, some kind of lunge or like um, lateral step down or, or step up variation that is meant to own that range of motion. And so um, it is very much layered in that way. And so we're trying to 
I talked about like this idea of a curve in a session. So you start like slow and simple and then it curves up to faster and more complex. Then you get the speed and power and strength stuff. Um, but the warmups are very much in that order. So I want to be able to help drive range of motion passive changes followed by owning it actively um, through through the um, the later warmups. And we're looking at probably between like six and 10 warmup exercises for people, um, six to 10 warmups um, with three to five of those being like, this is for the person and three to five of those being like, all right, these are good general warmups that will help layer our, our specific warmups. Um, and so um, we'll occasionally use stuff that look, maybe looks more like stretching, but um, for the most part, it's more uh, positional breathing followed by, um, which will help with passive range of motion and help by doing something more active or more motor control based that'll help own that range of motion. Um, and then from there it gets into, you know, dyna dynamic movement and moving, moving with some kind of speed. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Phil, you got anything? I don't want to, I don't want to take over the show. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just enjoying seeing Adam geek out over, over this. This is a, right, definitely a topic <laughs> that Adam is enjoying. Um, so really the, the thing that interests me is, um, back in my day when I used to work with action sports, specifically BMX, um, we, there was that BMX posture that you never touched. You know, it was that rounded over back because once yep. you start straightening out their back, they can no longer fit on that little kid bike. Um, and you had kind of alluded with your shoulder range of motion that, you know, you're, you're looking for 120 degrees external rotation. I can barely get 90. Um, do you, how much of performance um, increase do you notice going back, moving that range of motion from 90 to 90 back to 120 to 45? Um, and then how far do you notice if you get, can you get too far where you start notice like a decrease in performance? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I just gave those like general rules. We see a lot of 120 to 70 and 130 to 60 and stuff like that. Um, and so those are just, those are just top of mind kind of general rules of like kind of, uh, baseline, like, all right, if you can't do this, you might not be able to perform at a high level. Um, I don't know if I have a specific answer for you, uh, but kind of where my mind is going with, with your question. Um, we, we have, um, Pitching coach in house. Um, pitching coach in house is a trained strength coach um, to intern with us, and they, they always have been. Um, uh, and you know, our, if you look at our business, like our first pitching coach is the pitching major league pitching coach of the Yankees, and the, the last three are all in pro ball. And um, the guy who's here right now is is probably going to be in pro ball in a year or two as well. Um, so they are really really good at what they do, and I don't try to mess too much with um, things that are going to um, change mechanics. Um, I just try to feed them information so they're better at coaching people, if that makes sense. And so, um, I think a, I think a bad sport coach can do more harm than a good strength coach can do good, if that makes sense. And so you can really drive people into the wrong positions, um, maybe positions that they don't necessarily have, um, if they're coached really, really poorly, um, especially at like high speeds or high loads. Um, whereas like a lot of times if we don't deal with someone who, um, or if we're dealing with someone who maybe is being coached really poorly, like we're just fighting an uphill battle to try to try to either maintain changes or try to just give them enough on the health side so that they can, they can stay healthier for longer. Um, and so I don't know if I have the exact window. I definitely know that like more range of motion isn't, isn't always better. Um, it might actually change the skill side of it. And so, um, if you think about um from like a motor skill side like we have these like really stable um we have these really stable patterns for high level performance of what they do and when we increase range of motion without also coaching the skill in a way that that is lined up with that increased range of motion we actually create instability in the pattern and so um like i'll give you the example of um use bmx i've never worked with a bmx person but i'll use the example of like you see these people who you go to like commercial gym, you see these people like in their fifties and sixties who like lift with horrible technique. And you're like, how does that person not get hurt? But in reality, they're just really stable within their patterns. Um, their patterns aren't how you perform at a high level, uh, but they're really stable within their patterns and actually changing how they do things and are changing their range of motion, um, like or drastically changing range of motion, then not changing how they try to 
do their sport or do their skill or do the lift, whatever they're trying to do is actually maybe very unsafe for them. And so okay. you've got to make sure that your, your range of motion changes are lining up with, um, with how the skill is going, it's being performed. And for us, like, if you look at the course of a kind of an annual year for, for a player, it doesn't really matter the sport, um, range of motion changes or like broad changes like that. We're, we're really trying to make two periods of the year. It's one early off season. So we have a lot of time or two, um, they're dealing with some kind of pain or, or something that is, we need to get them away from it. Um, those are the biggest windows of we can, we're going to really try to change range of motion. If somebody's in season and they're a little bit limited, but it's not painful, we're not going to try to like make a drastic change. Um, that would potentially like set them up for an unstable pattern that they don't necessarily have the, uh, the motor control of. So uh, that's just kind of broad picture thoughts on that question. I like that answer. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like if you increase range of motion that you don't have control over, then obviously that's going to be unstable range of motion, right? Um, I, I, there's, I want to talk about arm care specifically, yeah. what you guys recommend. Before we go down that hole, um, I was going to, there was another question I was going to ask you based off what you just said. Uh, oh, so we've talked about this and I don't know if this, if this is something we can talk about now or, or you actually have a, enough anecdotal numbers for this, but you, you've, you've discussed with me arm slots and range of motion. Yeah. Do you want to touch Absolutely. on that at all? Yeah. A hundred percent. So um, coaching everybody into the same arm slot is a really bad idea. That's number one. Um, uh, mainly because like when a kid chooses to throw from a lower arm slot naturally, it's not because they just got lazy, right? It's generally because that's where their arm moves more, most efficiently. And if we look at like the major leagues or look at higher level performance, like high majority of people don't actually throw overhand. Um, they kind of throw from like a, what they call in baseball, like a three quarter slot, a high three quarter, a low three quarter. Um, their trunk is moving out of the way to get them into that position. And so um, we use the external rotation example. We've actually had a lot of success with um, kid comes to us with like, oh, my shoulder gets sore when I throw, let's check out the shoulder. They have 90 degrees of ER. And it's like, well, where do you try to throw from? And they say over the top, my coach wants me to be over the top. And it's like, well, you don't actually have the range of motion to get there. So that makes sense that your shoulder hurts. Like, what if you try to drop your arm slot by as little as like one to two inches? And it's like, oh, my shoulder doesn't hurt. Like, okay, well, let's keep throwing from there. Um, and so a lot of those guys, the higher level will have more horizontal abduction. So on a table, like going uh, straight arm straight towards the ground, um, more horizontal abduction relative to ER, um, like they're above average on abduction, they're below average on ER, um, and they, they should throw from a slightly lower slot. Now we see a lot of like um, the guy without mentioning names that um, has a lot of abduction and actually throws over the top in terms of where the ball is released but it's because he has this crazy lateral trunk tilt that, that puts the ball there. So look at, um, I, not this guy, cause I don't actually know him, but, um, if you look at like a Raldis Chapman, a lot of this call is probably heard of, um, his, like the ball is released relatively over the top, but look at his hand to opposite shoulder line. Um, it's actually kind of a straight line. So if you just put his upper body upright, he would kind of be throwing sidearm. So, yep. um, so a lot of times like, um, that's where like having a good skill coach comes in, but also educating the kids to be advocates for themselves. Like if you, um, you know, if you have a kid and you feel strongly like, Hey, that position might hurt you, you know, tell them like, Hey, like you should, you should slightly change the way you're going about this. Um, so that's kind of just uh, really quick, uh, mostly anecdotal, um, right. anecdotal, but also logical. Like if you don't have the range of motion, don't try to use it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, so, it goes back to what we already talked about with, with, not forcing you into ranges of motion in the gym right so yes, same thing yeah. here if you've identified somebody doesn't have the mobility to to pitch in that arm slot then don't yeah. force them there right and there's and there's, so the other example too which you probably see a lot um in other in field sports is like um there are guys who are quicker uh i'll use basketball example because basketball is probably the easiest sport to picture a side shuffle um, there are guys who are quicker taller based off their anatomy and so like forcing everybody like getting this low defensive stance actually might prohibit some guys from being from being fast because yeah. they're um, because you're going to be faster in like mid range in kind of these sweet spots or mid range of motion 
if you jam somebody into like like if everyone if you if if the listeners like stood up and went into their bottom range of their squat wherever that was and then tried to be quick they're not going to be good the good at it right you yeah. got to be in a mid range and so like some of these taller longer guys who are uh, you know higher level basketball players and the same is true in other sports as well that require you being low on defense um, are better off being a little taller yeah. um, and so that's not and that's but the way it's um, coached at the youth levels is like you know, low man wins or, or get as low as you can. And it's not necessarily um, advantageous for kids. Now there's a, there's a range. You can't be standing upright. Right. But um, you have to kind of figure out what the sweet spot is based off how you're built. Yeah. But- as a taller guy, I appreciate that comment. <laughs> I, I was the one that was yeah. always told get lower, get lower. And I never could just couldn't do yeah. it. No. Yep. Yeah. 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 yeah, but it's, it's, like, not you're not, it's not that you're not trying, right? That goes yeah. back to like the how things are taught, not as not what is being taught. It's how things are taught, and um, you know these blanket cues of everybody should do this this way is not really accurate. Like I think coaches at the youth level have to set up like set up environments just to let kids figure out how they, what they're better at. So things like small sided games and things like making things reactive. Uh, small sided game would be like in basketball going three on three instead of five on five, or creating more constraints to it. Just let kids kind of play and figure out what their what their what their strengths are, and then as a coach, observing that and be like, all right, well, this is a kid who looks better when he does that. Um, and so, like, there's there's so many. I see more on the baseball side than other sport. There's so many kids on the baseball side that are just told like you have to throw over the top, and then their shoulder hurts. And in reality, they, their arm slot should just be two inches lower. Yep. Yep. Monitor, yep. yep. Let them let them figure it out. Monitor their discomfort level and yep. make uh, small incremental adjustments uh, till they find it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think the the theme of the show, and hopefully people are picking up on this, is that nothing is one size fits all, right? You have to have an assessment. Everybody's going to need to be individualized to some degree. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent. Everybody to have something different, but um, at, at the same time, you do need to individualize it. That being said, talk to me about arm care. Again, this is not going to be something that is you can just individualize or that you can just blanket uh, prescribe, yeah. but if you could, or just give us some general themes of what you guys do or, or what y'all do at Cressy for arm care, you know, y- you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Give me, give me some arm so, care tips and tricks. Absolutely. So, um, the analogy I'll use with a bunch of things, okay, will be, uh, like if you ask somebody like, is chicken good for you? Okay. And people are probably like, this has nothing to do with arm care, but it will, um, is chicken good for you? People are like, yeah, yeah, chicken's good for you. And it's like, all right, well, 20-piece McNugget and McDonald's, is that good for you? And it's like, no, of course not. Like, No, but it's um, delicious. Yeah, it's, it's maybe the best thing I ever created. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, uh, but no, so it, it is – arm care is no different than other parts of training in that it is how you do it, the quality of what you do, not necessarily the quantity of what you do. And so um, the way we coach, let's say, um, if anyone's in the baseball world, like they have, you know, Bands are really popular baseball. It generally provides, I think it provides proprioception in favorable positions for kids. It also provides like uh, local tissue temperature and blood flow to areas that they're going to use. Um, so I think even if you use them incorrectly, that kids might feel like they like are really, they feel better after using them um, for those reasons. However, um, the way we're going to coach stuff like that is everyone's going to get like two to four band exercises that they do really, really well before they throw. And that's more important to us than doing like 10 really poorly. And I'm not talking like two or three for like 20 reps each. I'm talking like, let's say three for one set of eight um, each, and then then you move on. And so um, it is very much a quality over quantity approach um, on that front. In terms of in the gym or what we try to work on, um, I think of things as uh, proximal distal, close chain to open chain, um, so doing things with the rib cage in good position and rib cage is going to kind of in a pitching delivery and I didn't invent this, uh, but, um, deliver the scap, the scap's going to deliver the arm, the arm's going to deliver the ball. Right. And so doing things that promote good rib cage position, good scapular position first, um, uh, both in closed and open chain. So closed chain would be like, you know, different quadruped or, or crawling variations, um, and, or up variations as well. Um, an open chain would be, you know, stuff like, um, you know, your more traditional, like overhead shoulder flexion and wall slides and, um, you know, even rows and stuff like that. Um, you know, rows creating some kind of distraction force, but, uh, from there, so that we're talking scap there from there, we're talking actual 
shoulder itself. So proximal and proximal distal, uh, working on being really strong in specific positions. And so, uh, we'll do a lot of isometric work at end range external rotation. Uh, we will do some, um, eccentric control at, um, uh, in from external rotation into internal rotation because it's specific to the sport. Um, it's not to say we won't do stuff like sideline or won't do stuff in, in different positions, but, uh, we're going to try to make as much of our, um, our shoulder specifics or shoulder stuff as specific as we can. And then from there, um, you know, even stuff like, you know, making sure the elbow is functioning correctly. So getting, um, you know, into extension and pronation and flexion and supination, um, as you move, which is going to mimic throwing action stuff as simple as like, if you're going to do arms, like triceps and biceps, do them really well like do them, do them with intent and do them with full yeah. range of motion. Um, and you know, like nobody, nobody plays a higher level cause they can move more weight on a, a bicep curl, you know, but we have our higher level arms do some stuff like curls and triceps, um, with lighter weights with full range of motion. Um, and so I'm um, just talking uh, kind of backtrack there, but like free throwing, pick a couple things, do them really well. Um, weight room or what you do throughout the year, you know, train your rib cage in good position, move your scaps in good position. So protraction, upper rotation, um, train the blending room joint or the shoulder in specific positions, uh, both isometrically and with eccentric control, and then train the elbow and the wrist in, you know, uh, flexion, extension, pronation, supination. So, uh, that's kind of, but kind of backtrack there. Like if you know, um, normative positions of those and positions that they're going to need on the mound, you can backtrack what you need to do with the arm, um, in the weight room. So, so that's, that's kind of how it. how important is rotator cuff strengthening to you? Um, it's valuable. It's valuable. I'm not gonna say it's not valuable. Give me give me your real that opinion. Is, don't 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 sugarcoat. Uh, I'll put it this way: I think a lot of people think a lot of people think it's more important than it is because they skip a lot of steps. I'll put it that okay. way. And so, unless you are checking off a bunch of other boxes, like that can't be your primary thing that you do. Right. It has to be part of a comprehensive program. Um, and so what I mean by that is like, if you're only doing rotator cuff specific work and you're not actually training, you're not doing push-ups and rows and, and doing core specific stuff that's putting your abs in a good position and not moving your scaps in a, in a, in a good way. Um, and not also loading your lower half in some way. Cause, um, if, you know, if my guy gets more force out of his legs than yours does then and they throw the same speed well your guy has a lot more brunt on his arm than mine does um right and so yeah. uh or, or has to take on a lot more of the force of his arm so uh so it has to be part of a comprehensive program like it is included in all of our programs but none of our programs are just this you know or ju just anything but specifically like arm care specific stuff yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i just uh, wanted to get you to you know talk a, a little bit about obviously rotator cuff and low trap strength is important to yeah. shoulder health but like you said it's not the only thing that you have to look at it's not something you can do in isolation to have uh, a healthy shoulder exactly yeah. if you're doing an isolation it's like icing on the cake yeah it's not the it's not the it's not the the whole thing itself yeah and like and like oh, we, have, we have guys who you know in our off season are training six days a week for nine uh, you know 75 90 minutes at a time so yeah it's like those guys are, are definitely getting some some cuff and 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 you know low trap specific stuff like you said. But our kids who are training twice a week and have never lifted a weight like that's not the that's not the top of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Great. Love it. Great. Philly, what else you got? Anything? I I think that I think that's uh, a good show right there. Yeah. So I got I, I we usually do a little lightning round, John. Um, but they're they're All usually right, more specific. I was gonna say they're more specific to athlete trainers. So I just came up with a couple random ones that I'm gonna throw at you right now that are funny for it might be inside joke funny, but I'm gonna do it anyway. So, John, <laughs> name a few foods or at least one food that you've never eaten. Okay. Um, so you asked this um, at a very good time. So I'm going to a bachelor party in two weeks. And I, I promised my friends I would try one to three foods that I've never had, depending on the level of difficulty for me to want to eat it. And so I, cre I created a list for them um, of 40 foods that I've never had. Oh my God, there's um, 40. <laughs> um, I, some of them I've tried recently because I'm like, all right, I'm going to eliminate this from the list myself. Yeah. Um, I just had watermelon for the first time last week. Um, oh my God. I, I've never had soup. Um, I was going to say, really, I just wanted I, to know what, what's your beef with I've soup? I've never, 
I've never had a condiment other than ketchup and barbecue sauce, like no ranch or anything <laughs> else you can name. Um, and so there, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, yeah. But I don't even know where to start with that question because I can go uh, in a million different ways. No, no, I just want I just wanted to pick on you because I know your your uh, <laughs> your your food choices are very small, so we'll we'll stick to that. But a lot, of, like uh, I, people always tell me, but a lot of the foods people want me to try, like like they literally look and and smell disgusting. So I have no interest <laughs> in trying. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I said that you're a savant and uh, you're a math nerd and, and you you memorize all this stuff. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna pick a random World Series and t- see if you can tell me who won it. Do you think you can do it? So 19 uh, very easily actually, but yeah, keep going. Oh, that's what I figured. All right, so how about 1973? Who won the World Series? 1973, the A's A's won the World Series. No doubt. <laughs> I love do, it. Do we, they won in 72, in 72, 73, and 74. They beat the Mets in a seven-game series in 73. This guy's crazy. He he, he loves stats. He's All right, while, while he's looking that up, current fitness goal? Uh, Good question. Um, I'd like to squat 500 pounds at some point. It's not okay. the uh, end-all, be-all goal. Um, like I'm not training specifically for that. Um, the more specific goal is just finish my current program because um, it's kind of hard. Um, just get through all of it. Uh, but uh, I'd like to do something crazy like that. I don't know what the next goal is. Um, I haven't had one specific goal in a while. I still train hard. I like to train hard. Um, yeah. It's probably the, oftentimes the most enjoyable part of the day. So, uh, But uh, train four days a week. Um, try to move heavyweights with some moderate degree of athleticism, uh, but <laughs> um, more so on the heavier lifting end for sure right now. Perfect. Phil, I, what I have say? to, I have to report Wikipedia was wrong, but uh, baseball uh, nice. reference does say that Oakland won over New York. Perfect. Yep. Four to three. Love that. All right. Last, last one. How many times have you run mass two? That's actually what I was referring to. Um, Is that what you're on right now? Yeah, I just finished week eight this morning, actually. But uh, I have run mass, mass, mass two, or a variation of somewhere between ten and thirteen times. Jeez. I have finished it. I have finished it six times. Okay. So, so the, for for the audience I, out there, uh, mass two is a is a strength training program from Dr. Pat Davidson. It's extremely hard and just beat you up, but it's really good. It 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 gets you jacked. It gets you strong. Um, it, I'm, but it's le- I'm, le- I'm legitimately 45, 40 to 45 pounds thicker than I was when I started it. Dang. Granted, I've done, I've done, granted, I've done it like a lot over the last right. five years, but, um, right. um, it's hard. It's fun. I like it cause it is, um, it's a challenge every time it is something different than what I normally coach. Um, so I know there are some people in the industry who like coach the programs they write. I have no, or sorry. Do train, the programs, yeah. Um, do the programs they write. I have no interest in training like a like a teenage baseball player, zero. Uh, <laughs> like and um, so I, my my training is a little different. Um, I enjoy it, uh, but um, definitely have gotten beat up sometimes from it. And haven't finished it, but uh, but looking to finish it for the seventh time uh, later this year, in a couple months. Yeah. Perfect. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Well, John, you've been awesome to chat with. And I just want to say a serious uh, thank you to you for taking your time to, to share your expertise with us and our audience. Um, if, if viewers uh, have any questions and want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah, um, my Instagram is O'Neill Strength. Um, I have been told that I say the word strength in a weird way. I have something with the G-T-H um, in, in speech that I cannot pronounce. But uh, you guys should all be able to figure out the word. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's at, at, at O'Neill Strength. Um, if you DM me, I'll be able to get back to you. That's probably the easiest way. Um, and I'm happy to, you know, come on again or, or do whatever with uh, with you guys. This was a lot of fun. So um, let me know if it's any way like, I can share it or do, or do whatever. All right. Yeah, perfect, perfect, John. Thank you again. Um, and I want to say a huge thank you to Rothman Clinic uh, for sponsoring this episode. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Remember to like, subscribe, share, tweet, post, comment, and DM. Until next time, I'm Adam Richmond. And I'm Philip Hensler. And this was the Pats Podcast. Perfect. Nice. Awesome.